Today is Good Friday, and today we complete our Making Sense of the Cross series with David Lose. Today on the Church Next podcast, learn three major theological theories about what the cross means for Christians and how we should bring the cross into our daily lives. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Church Next podcast. My name is Elizabeth Brignac, and I'll be your host today. Today, we're going to be doing the third of three podcasts with David Lose on making sense of the cross. Now, the first podcast in this series, which we did earlier in Lent, discussed the cross through the lens of our own experiences and what viewing the cross in that context brings to the table. The second one discussed understanding the cross through the lens of the Gospels and the different Gospel writers. And today, David will discuss major theories about the cross that have been offered by theologians over the centuries. Like the second podcast in this series, this podcast will be a little bit longer than the others generally are. David Lose is senior pastor at Mount Olivet Lutheran Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He's the author of the Making Sense book series, including Making Sense of the Cross, Making Sense of the Christian Faith, Making Sense of Scripture, and a number of others. And David is a very well-respected speaker, as well as an author. He speaks widely in the United States and abroad on preaching and on the Christian faith in the postmodern world and biblical interpretation. Our podcasts are curated from our online learning library at churchnext.tv, and you can learn more about us there. And if you'd like to support us, please consider a $9 monthly subscription. That will give you access to over 400 individual online classes. Your generosity helps us produce digital experiences that help shape disciples. In this third podcast in our Making Sense of the Cross series, David Lose turns our attention to some of the theories that have been projected over the centuries as to why Jesus died on the cross and what the cross means. And he looks at three major theories in this episode. He looks at the ancient theory, the substitution theory, and the love theory. And the cross is everywhere. We see it. We identify with it. We wear crosses around our necks. We know exactly what it means when we see the cross. And could we say if asked, if somebody asked us to explain what that meant, do we really understand it? How does the cross inform our worldview and shape our daily lives and our living with others? These questions are what some of the theorists over the years have set out to answer against the backdrop of their own environments and influences and prejudices, and their theories still guide how we think about the cross today. So each of the following discussions will give an overview of one of these theories and then pose four questions about it. What is the problem that the theory seeks to address? What is the resolution? What does God look like as a result of the theory? And what does Christian life look like according to that theory? So for every one of these theories, David asks that same series of four questions. In his first talk, David gives us the background and an overview of the issues that shaped the ancient or ransom theory of atonement. We will learn about the ancient's view of God as a real and active struggle with a devil that had rights and powers and God's eventual triumph over the devil through Jesus' death on the cross. Now, one of the things you might remember we've said about the Gospels is that each of them was written to a particular community in particular circumstances with particular questions. 
right? So Mark's writing to a community that might have come through a recent period of struggle or suffering or persecution, whereas Luke is writing to a community that's struggling with, what do we do with all these Jews and Gentiles and people of multiple faiths? The same is going to be important to keep in mind with these three different theories of atonement, that is, these three schools of thought of how we can understand the cross. We're going to want to think about where did they come from and what were the issues and the challenges and the questions that Christians were asking at the time, and how might we understand these theories as answers to those questions. That's going to be important because it will help us then weigh and assess and evaluate how valuable how useful, how helpful those theories are to us in our own time and circumstances. All right, so the first theory we want to talk about was formulated in the early centuries of the Christian faith, that is, in the years immediately after, the couple centuries immediately after the events the Gospels tell. Uh, And it was pretty influential for almost a thousand years. Now, the two things I want you to keep in mind as we're talking about this theory is first, that although we tend today to think about the cross often in terms of forgiveness, that wasn't the major issue or question of believers in the ancient world. They had a different set of questions that revolved around the nature of life and of death, and maybe not surprisingly, of life after death. They wanted to know what happened. They wanted to know how God dealt with this major specter and problem of death. Second thing to keep in mind is that this theory is originally formulated when the church, the Christian witness, is a minority group. It's one of a number of traditions. Uh, In fact, it's often looked down upon by a number of other traditions, including, at this point in history, the Roman Empire. And so the Christians of this day are experiencing struggle, challenge, persecution, martyrdom, And this theory arises out of their reflections of how it is that God is saving, working through all of this struggle and this conflict for the redemption, not just of them, but of the whole world. Of the three theories we're going to talk about, three understandings of atonement, this first one, the ancient theory of atonement, in some ways will be the most difficult or unusual for us to... I think, grapple with, in part because the mindset, the questions of these ancient believers are, in many ways, very different from our own. Um, In the ancient world, there was a real clear and palpable sense, not only of God, but also of the devil and of the struggle of these two cosmic powers, one for good and one for evil, and a strong belief that perpetuated, that permeated through the Christian environment that the Christian life was caught up in the struggle. And so when they make sense of the cross, they make sense of it in these same cosmic terms. So I'll try to explain it, and if you have questions, great. That's what it's about. Ask them, talk about them, share them. Together we'll, uh, we'll, get, we'll get through this and see how it applies to our own life. All right, so the basic issue at stake for these early Christians is to think about how it is that humanity can ever be rescued from the clutches of the devil. The theory goes that when humans sin in Adam and Eve, and every time since, that we become the possession, we become the property of Satan, that Satan has a claim on us. There's kind of a scheme that understands that that everything in the world has a part to play. And in some ways, the role that Satan is expected to play is that of the jailer, or uh, the keeper, or the one who punishes sinful humans. Now, the problem is that although God has set up this system and wants to live within the rules, God loves humanity and doesn't want to give humanity over to Satan forever. 
And so what God does is then come into the story in a more direct or more, more personal way by becoming human in the person of Jesus. Now, at this point, there are two variations on this ancient theory. One of them imagines that what happens when God comes in the person of Jesus in the flesh is that Satan sees Jesus and assumes that because he's human, that Satan can lay claim to him the way he has everyone else, uh, uh, the way Satan has laid claim on every other human because of original sin. And so when Jesus dies, Satan claims him and brings him down to hell, and yet then is surprised, is, is even tricked, in that Jesus isn't a human like every other human. Jesus is fully human, but also fully God. And so, in fact, Satan has no claim on him and has overextended his reach, has broken the rules, has grabbed off too much, bitten off more than he can chew. Ancient Christians actually sometimes would say that Jesus' flesh was like the worm on a fishing line and that Satan comes along as this big fish, grabs hold of the worm, but gets stuck on the hook of Jesus' divinity. All right, the other way that early Christians, the other variation that Christians played with this, this theme is that um, God recognized that the only way he could redeem humanity was to give something else of equal or greater value to Satan. That is, Satan has a claim, has a right to own humanity. God wants humanity back, and so God must give Satan, pay Satan something, some kind of ransom to bring back humanity, and that ransom is Jesus. And Satan, knowing that Jesus is not just a human, but is the very Son of God, assumes that if he takes hold of Jesus, then not only will we have the Son of God, but in time he'll be able to bring all humanity back as well. But again, Satan is surprised. He didn't count on the fact that Jesus was more powerful than death, that Jesus, because he was sinless and perfect, could not be kept by Satan. And so when Jesus is raised from the dead, death cannot hold him. So also all of lost humanity is raised with him. David's second talk helps us consider more deeply what the ancient theory is and how it might or might not prove helpful to us today. And he evaluates that theory according to the four main questions that we talked about at the beginning of this episode. What is the problem that the theory seeks to address? What is the resolution? What does God look like as a result of this theory? And what does the Christian life look like according to this theory? So David asks us to consider the pros and cons of this theory and embracing this theory in our own lives. All right, as I mentioned, I know this is a fairly complex, in some ways, cosmic story we're trying to get our heads around. Um, but we're going to follow a pattern with each of the three theories of atonement that I think will help. After trying to give a basic outline of the picture or story of this theory of atonement, then we're going to ask four questions. And after those four questions, then we'll look at the pros and cons of each. So when it comes to this classic ancient theory of atonement, I want to ask four things. First, what's the problem? That is, how does this understanding of the cross portray our human dilemma, our plight? What is it that we need being rescued from? Well, in terms of the ancient theory we just talked about, it is that because we have sinned, right, from Adam and Eve on, we're all captive to sin, which means we are captive to Satan. The devil has a rightful, lawful, even natural claim on us, which means our futures are pretty dim. All right, second question. What's the resolution? 
What's the response? How does the cross make atonement happen? As we said, there are kind of two versions here. In each of them, God takes on human flesh. Jesus, the Son of God, walks among us and as one of us. And in one of these theories, Satan overreaches. Satan sees Jesus and grabs hold of him and brings him down to death, but can't hold on to the true Son of God. In the other, God actually offers Jesus as a ransom, offers to trade Jesus for lost humanity, and Satan eagerly agrees, but when uh, but forgets that, Satan can't hold on to this innocent son of God. And so when Jesus is raised, we're all raised with him. All right, so what's the problem? What's the resolution? The third question I want to ask is, what is God like? That is, how does this theory help us imagine what God is, who God is for us? Well, according to this theory, God loves humanity enough to get into the mix, to get into the fray, to struggle to wrestle, and eventually to be victorious. Now, that's the positive. The, the thing we're going to want to explore a little bit is that God is willing enough to get into fray, to, to, to treat Satan in some ways almost like an equal player. And so God resorts to paying Satan or tricking Satan. And again, that's something we're going to want to explore a little further. All right, fourth question. What's the problem? What's the resolution? What does God look like? What does the Christian life look like? That is, how does this theory help us imagine the nature and the shape of our daily life in the world as Christians? And here, this theory struggles a little bit. It doesn't actually say that much about the details of our daily lives. There's a way in which the story is told on such a grand or cosmic scheme that it never totally touches ground and helps us think about how to be Christian, except in one important way, actually. Again, remember what I said, the Christians who are first formulating this theory are living at a time where Christians are often persecuted. And so imagining that the Christian life is like a struggle, that God gets involved in the struggle, that our life is caught up in this titanic struggle between good and evil, was very helpful to them, and also, quite frankly, has been helpful to modern communities, whether it's Latin American or African or Chinese Christian communities that themselves may be where they themselves may be experiencing struggle or persecution. And so at some times, we may also find that it helps to think about our life as a struggle and take comfort that God is with us, and more than that, that God will bring us through in the end victoriously. But I want to think now for a moment about the pros and the cons. That is, what are the strengths of this ancient theory of atonement, and maybe what are its limitations? Well, the strengths are, in fact, that it offers this really vivid, powerful story of God getting mixed up in the struggle. It takes both cross and resurrection very seriously and sees these elements of, of Jesus' story as the moments of God's triumph. As I mentioned, communities throughout the church's history that have suffered persecution have found great comfort in this idea that God struggles, God's willing to get into the game, and eventually to bring them out victoriously. Um, I think one of the other things that's really valuable about this theory is that it takes resurrection so seriously. It's very easy for Christians, and we'll see this as we look at more theories. It's very easy for Christians to get so caught up in the cross that the resurrection is almost an afterthought. But here, that really matters. That is, it's, it's enough to see in Jesus God willing to suffer, struggle, and die. But finally, the critical moment is, in fact resurrection, that death cannot hold life, that sin cannot contain or defeat grace, 
that God is more powerful than all that stands against us. All right, having looked at that, I want to also, though, think about some of the limitations or weaknesses to this theory also. And there are a couple, and maybe the first is the easy one. Um, on the one hand, it's, it's, as we said, it's a great story. It's a cosmic story, and maybe that's why we see it popping up in places uh, like Star Wars or C.S. Lewis or others have connected it to the Matrix and, and beyond um, because of these this cosmic uh, universal elements. But for some of us, that will also be a little bit of the weakness. That is, it's hard for us to relate to it. It's hard for us to imagine that it isn't just a C.S. Lewis story or a fantasy movie. It's hard for us to understand how it uh, connects to our daily lives. Second weakness is that it emphasizes a few portions of the biblical witness. Um, it, there's a verse in Mark that talks where Jesus says, not only has the Son of Man come not to be served, but to serve, but also to give his life as a ransom for many. And that term ransom becomes very important, as we've seen in this theory. It's hard to know, or actually it's, it's unlikely that Mark imagined ransom in quite the same ways. Um, but that becomes a signature verse. This, this uh, theory of atonement also plays strongly to John's gospel, the heroic Jesus that we looked at, and particularly John's, the last thing John reports Jesus is saying on the cross. It is finished, we usually translate it, but better, it is accomplished. That is, the cross is the moment of triumph, not defeat. Uh, and there are elements of Paul in Revelation. But it leaves out, this theory leaves out scads of other reflections on the cross about forgiveness, about compassion, about healing, and those are elements we'll want to see picked up in other theories. Last weakness, maybe, for some of us that we want to pay attention to is that we can get a little unsettled by the picture of God this theory portrays. Um, That is, on the one hand, it's great to think about God getting in the mix, joining the fight, struggling with Satan to win us back. On the other hand, there's something a little, I don't know, fishy or odd or even unseemly about God needing to trick the devil uh, or God being willing to pay the devil. And there's a kind of peculiar element there that haunts this theory, that dogs it. In fact, it's the place we'll want to start, or at least the next theory we'll look at, we'll want to start, and we'll go there in the next session. Next, David explores the substitution, or satisfaction, theory of atonement. While it takes into consideration God's love of humanity, this theory remains primarily focused on God's honor and, as later modified God's justice, being offended by sinful mankind. And the solution for that, according to this theory, is for Jesus to take our punishment for us. This next theory, the satisfaction or substitutionary theory of atonement, dominates the church for the second thousand years of its history in many different quarters. It's formulated by a man by the name of Anselm, who becomes Saint Anselm of Canterbury. Anselm is a monk. Uh, He becomes the abbot of his monastery. He is a teacher. He's a theologian. And by the end of his career, he's a very important bishop. And in his role as a bishop, he carries on a long and at times uh, vigorous, even heated dialogue with the king, 
uh, and with different lords that are around his territory. And there's a constant theme in, in Anselm's later life about how one understands the relationship between church and state or bishop and king. And so more than many people, he understands the power, the authority, the nature of the monarchy. So uh, Anselm is writing in the middle of the medieval world at the height of feudalism, a time where there are kings and peasants in a very stratified sense of of the role that everyone plays. Uh, And it's that sense of kingship that we're going to want to keep in mind with everything we look at with Anselm's theory. So at the heart of Anselm's understanding of the cross is this conception of God as a king. Not just a king, actually God as the king, the king of the universe. And the very important thing that Anselm always keeps in mind is that what's critical to a king is the king's honor. Uh, And that any time a peasant, a subject, a serf, offends God's honor, then that subject is liable to death. Right? The king's honor is what makes the king, the king, God's region on earth. The king's honor is what separates the king from all other humans. And so God's honor becomes at the very center of Anselm's theology. And he sees and understands sin as an offense against God's honor. Now, the problem is that original sin, right, the fact that we're all born liable to sin and all make that sin our own in our various uh, unhelpful choices, is an offense against God's honor that we can never make up. That is, even if we sin only once and spend the rest of our lives living perfectly, yet at the end of the day, when you look at the tally sheet, there it is on the debit side, one big mark, one big offense against God's honor. Now, that creates a problem. Uh, For Anselm, the cross is the resolution or is the answer. Because in Jesus, you see the God-man. Uh, And that term becomes very important for Anselm. In fact, his most famous work is called Why the God-Man? Asking the question, why did Jesus, why did God become human in Jesus? And why did Jesus die on the cross? And for Anselm, it's as a response to this problem that we have that we've offended God's honor. Okay, so picture it this way. Um, Here's the problem. Humanity are the peasants. God is the king. Humanity, through by sinning, has offended God's honor, and we're stuck. We have no way of reconciling that debt. But God loves humanity. God does not want to punish humanity or be separated from humanity, but God must because of the dictates of God's honor. One of the um, films or stories that comes to mind for me to kind of uh, uh, give this some legs, some flesh is the story of King Arthur. Uh, You might remember one of the really bittersweet, poignant moments of that story is that Arthur later in his life have two people who are more dear to him than anyone on earth. One is Guinevere, his uh, beloved wife, and the other is Lancelot, uh, the knight who comes from France and becomes Arthur's champion and best friend. And over time, those two, Lancelot and Guinevere, are attracted to each other and drawn to each other and eventually betray Arthur. Um by having an affair behind his back. When Arthur realizes what happens, he is torn because he realizes he loves these two enough that he could himself as a person forgive them uh, and give them to each other. But he can't as a king. That is, if he allows these two to break the law and to be unpunished, to offend the king's honor and not make satisfaction, 
um, then he invites anyone in the realm to act the same way. That is, once God's honor has been offended uh, and no satisfaction is made, the jig is up. Anselm's picture of God is very similar. God is stuck in this dilemma. God loves humanity, and yet humanity has offended God's honor. So the solution then is the God-man. Here comes Jesus, who is fully God, uh, and as God can satisfy all the demands for God's honor. That is, can live a perfect life, and not only a perfect life, but kind of a super perfect life. That is, Jesus at the end gives his life for the world, something he totally didn't have to do. And so Jesus, in a sense, accrues this super abundance of merit. He not only lives a righteous life for himself, but he lives a righteous enough life to give that righteousness over to humanity. And this is where the second part becomes important, because Jesus is not only God, Jesus is also human. And because Jesus is like us, he can give to us this superabundance of grace uh, that he's acquired. Um, the way this theory gets modified is by two uh, uh, of the most important theologians of the last millennia, Thomas Aquinas uh, and John Calvin. And they shift the emphasis from God's honor to God's justice. And there, in that move, it makes this theory more compelling for us because we do live in a society of laws and regulations. We understand justice and we understand punishment. So the variation on this theory that then takes hold of the imagination of a lot of the Protestant church and most of Roman Catholicism for many of the last hundreds of years uh, is that the human problem then is that we've sinned and therefore what? We deserve punishment. God still loves us, wants to redeem us, but can't, can't make a mockery of God's justice. And so God sends Jesus to live a perfect life and take our punishment on him. If you've heard the phrase, he died for our sins, it comes up in Paul's letters and other places, this is a line from scripture that these later followers of Anselm seize on, that Jesus literally dies for our sins. That is, in the cross, we see all of the punishment that we deserve uh, Jesus taking. And when Jesus takes that punishment, when he makes satisfaction to God's justice, then, and only then, God is able to turn to us in mercy, love, and forgiveness. David goes on to continue his examination of the scope and nature of the substitution theory of atonement. He allows us to evaluate it according to the four questions that we established at the beginning of this episode. He also explores the theory's strengths and limitations in terms of our daily lives. As before, we want to look at uh, four questions or ask four questions to this particular theory of atonement to help us understand it more deeply. First question again is, what is the problem? How does this substitutionary theory of atonement understand the nature of the human dilemma? Here it's pretty simple, right? The problem is sin. We have sinned, and because we've sinned, we've offended God's honor, Anselm, uh, God's sense of justice, later theologians like Aquinas and Calvin. Because we've sinned, we deserve death. We deserve punishment here and in the life to come. Second question, what's the solution? How does the cross achieve at one minute, atonement. Again, it's pretty straightforward. Jesus comes as the God-man, and because he is both God and human, he can live a perfect life. He can satisfy God's honor and justice. 
Uh, and because he's human, what he does can also count for or be extended to us. So in the cross, Jesus makes satisfaction. Or in the later, uh, the theory that takes hold of the Protestant and Roman Catholic imagination, Jesus is punished for us. And once God's demand for justice has been met, then God can again love and forgive us. Third question, who is God? What is God like? What is the character of God that this theory imagines? Here it gets a little more complex because on the one hand, what's very important to all these theologians, Anselm, Aquinas, Calvin, and all the others who have espoused this theory ever since, and I should say this is today by far the most popular theory of atonement, what's stressed regularly is God's love. God sends Jesus. Uh, God sends the God-man because God loves humanity and wants to redeem us. At the same time, there's this other element that is simply inescapable. And that is that as much as God loves us, God's honor, God's sense of justice must be satisfied. God can't just forgive us. And so the God we see apart from the cross as Jesus' substitutionary punishment, the God we see looking toward us is always stern, always just, always in some ways angry. There must be bloodshed to satisfy God's justice. All right, so fourth question then, what is the Christian life? That is, how does this theory contribute to our imagination about what our Christian lives in the world is like? And to be honest, like the classic theory, this one doesn't have a whole lot to say. Um, The primary element of the Christian life really is remembrance of and gratitude for the sacrifice Christ makes. In a way, it's like, getting in trouble as a school child and the person beside you is punished instead of you. Uh, And all you can do is leave that school day feeling relieved uh, and maybe a little grateful. And the idea is similar, that Jesus takes on our punishment so that every morning to every evening we should be aware of the keen, extreme punishment uh, Jesus took and live lives of grateful response. So again, let's look at both the strengths uh, and the limitations of this theory. Let's look at it in terms of pros and cons. I want to start with the strengths, start with the pros. Uh, And there are three in particular. First, this theory really does take seriously the power of sin uh, and the seriousness of our own sinfulness. And, And it wants to take seriously just how much God sacrifices, how much Jesus gives. Second, this theory picks up a number of other elements in the biblical witness about sin, about the wages of sin or death, about how Jesus dies for our sin, that the first theory overlooks. And again, I'm not always convinced that it reads these verses the same way perhaps Paul intended, Um, but it's important that it expands our imagination about the portions of the biblical witness that we ought to be thinking about when we think about the cross. The third, and I think in some ways the most important strength of this theory, is that it makes sense. It's logical. We're used to thinking in terms of debits and credits. We understand what it is to break a law. We understand crime and punishment. In addition to those strengths, though, I want to also think critically about some of the limitations. We looked at pros. Let's also look at cons. And there are four in particular I want to mention. First, um, we recognize that this theory makes sense. It holds together. There's a logic to it. 
But it's a cold logic. It's a calculating logic. It's one that makes sense in theory, but would be difficult for most of us, most of us to live out in our daily lives. Second, is it forgiveness if Jesus pays this debt? That is, can we really talk about God forgiving us if God had to punish someone and just lucky for us, it happened to be Jesus and not us? Right, so one of the primary motifs in Scripture uh, that Anselm and others pick up is this idea of the forgiveness of sin, and yet it's hard to argue that really there's any forgiveness happening whatsoever. Third, notice we haven't mentioned anything about the resurrection. Right, everything takes place on the cross. The cross is where the punishment comes. The cross is where Jesus renders God honor. The cross is where Jesus is substituted for us. The resurrection is almost an afterthought um, in this theory and Anselm and those who follow him. And I think that also tends to truncate the biblical witness. All you can really say about the resurrection is that maybe it's the sign that God has accepted this punishment, this payment, uh, in our favor. Fourth is this picture of God. I want to go back to that for a moment. Again, Anselm, Aquinas, Calvin, the rest stress God's love. But God's justice trumps God's love. That is, God wants to love us, but can't. Because as much as a loving parent as we'd like God to be, in this theory, finally, God is a stern, judging parent. And God simply cannot love us until there is payment, until there is satisfaction, until there is bloodshed. And for a lot of Christians, that ends up being a very problematic picture of God. In his next talk, David shifts the focus, first from Satan and then from God to the individual Christian believer and God's limitless love, which overtakes the need for ransom and for compensation. The love theory suggests that our inability to love the way that God intends is what separates us from God and it is this distance from God that requires atonement, atonement. Jesus is our example. He's our encourager as we seek to love in the way that God intends us to love. So atonement in this theory is God reaching out in love to draw us back. And the cross, according to that interpretation, is a love letter from God to humanity. We are now at our third of three theories of atonement, that is, ways of understanding how in and through the cross and resurrection of Jesus, God takes what is broken and makes it one. Uh, this third theory is actually formulated about the same time, maybe 50 or 60 years after Anselm's theory. It's come in and out of vogue in Christian history, but has never had the same level of influence, either as the classic theory in the first thousand years or the substitutionary theory of St. Anselm in the second uh, thousand years. Interestingly, though, it is formulated as a direct alternative to Anselm's theory. A younger theologian born a generation or so after Anselm is a man by the name of Peter Abelard. And Abelard starts his reflections on the cross with the same objection to Anselm that we ended up with. That is, you remember we said Anselm's theory is so logical, it makes so much sense, but it's a cold calculating theory, and at heart is a picture of God. 
uh, who is, no matter how much we talk about God's love, who is necessarily primarily stern and judgmental. God needs to judge first. God needs to have payment made for sin, satisfaction made for sin. Someone has to be punished before God can truly love us. That's Abelard's objection to. He feels that, uh, as logical as Anselm's theory is, nevertheless, it distorts a primary element of the biblical witness, which is that, in fact, God is love. So says the author of the first letter to John, uh, the first letter of John to early Christians, or the most famous Bible verse in history, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And Abelard wants to know, where has the love gone, and so offers another theory um, which stands in pretty sharp contradiction uh, to the one we learned about in the last session. So there are three main moves in Abelard's uh, theory of atonement, where Jesus is primarily our example and our encouragement. First, Abelard also recognizes sin, but he understands sin differently. It's not an offense to God's honor or justice. Rather, sin is an outcome of our inability to love as we are created to love. Um, St. Augustine, an important theologian in the early part of the Christian tradition, once said that God gives us things to use and people to love. And human sin is that we confuse those two all the time. Abelard would agree that what happens is that our, our love is distorted. We give it to things instead of people. We don't treat each other well, uh, that we're confused. And because we can't love well, let alone perfectly, we cannot finally abide or hope to abide to live with the God of love that Scripture witnesses to. Um, our inability to love keeps us at a distance from God. And that's what needs atonement. That's what is broken uh, and needs to be made at once. So Jesus comes then and remedies things, according to Abelard, in two particular ways. First, Jesus teaches us to love. When you read the Gospels, you get a picture of what love looks like when love walks around the world. Jesus comes and heals. Uh, He meets with those who are outcasts. Uh, He visits the sick. He feeds the hungry. He clothes the naked. Again and again, his entire life is one of love taken on flesh. And so Abelard says, look, if you want to see perfect love, look to Jesus. Look to his whole life, which culminates in Jesus giving himself on the cross, what? Out of love for all of humanity. The second thing, though, that Jesus does in his life, but especially in his death, is that he shows us how much God loves us. That is, he imagines the cross not primarily as an expression of God's anger. That is, God must have God's justice satisfied. But instead, the cross is God's love letter. Right? This is how much I love you. Enough to give over my only son. Enough to see my beloved sacrifice. Don't you understand this is how much I love you? This is the way Abelard conceives of the cross. And you can sense almost immediately, intuitively, how different it is uh, from Anselm. And what Abelard believes is that when we see love, not just an example, but when we see love poured out for us in the cross, our hearts are broken. Our lives are changed. That Jesus doesn't only set us an example, he inspires us and offers us encouragement.
In his final talk, David delves deeper into the love theory, and he evaluates it as a theory and as it applies to our lives in the same way that he has evaluated the substitution theory of atonement and the ancient theory. Let's then move to uh, the four questions we've asked before. What's the problem? That is, how does Abelard's theory of atonement describe the human situation? We do not know how to love. We cannot love. Therefore, we cannot live with God. What's the response? What's the answer? How through the cross does God make atonement? Jesus comes embodying God's love and both teaches us how to love and at the same time makes it possible for us to love by, uh, by showing us just how much we are loved by God. Right? There's kind of a genius here where Abelard recognizes that it's really hard to expect people who are fearful to have courage or expect people who feel unloved um, to be loving. Uh, and so Jesus comes not only teaching us about love, but also loving us into being able to love others. Uh, third, picture of God. Easy. Right? God is love. God is all love. God is about love. Right? That's the beginning of the story, the middle, and the end for Abelard. And then fourth, uh, what's the Christian life like? How does this theory shape our imagination of the Christian life? And here's where Abelard really uh, just sails above the rest, uh, in that he's really the only one who gives particular attention to how this understanding of a theory of the cross shapes our Christian life. For uh, Abelard, it is, look, do what Jesus did, right? Jesus' whole life is one of loving neighbors. If you want to know what your Christian life is like, it is to love others as you have been loved. And so Abelard takes very seriously the character of Jesus, not just the cross, and in that way gives us a lot to think about how we ought to live our lives and model them, conform them to Jesus' life of love. As we have before, let's look at the strengths and limitations of this theory. That is, let's talk about some pros and cons. The pros of Abelard's theory are many. Uh, as we said, he emphasizes God's love and in this way becomes a balance to Anselm. Anselm talks about God's love, but mostly stresses God's need for judgment. Um, in this way, Abelard offers a more relational picture of God. This is a God that it's a lot easier to imagine being in relationship with us, that he moves from a legal metaphor to a relational one. Third, uh, forgiveness is real in Abelard. Jesus comes embodying God's love, the love of forgiveness. In fact, Abelard would say to Anselm, look, uh, you're so concerned about God forgiving people or God not being able to forgive people until honor or justice is satisfied. This is about all Jesus does. Everywhere he goes in the Gospels, he's forgiving people. And Abelard wants us to call us back to remember that side of God. Abelard's also the only one who really emphasizes all of Jesus' life. Right Up until now, with the cosmic struggle of the ransom theory, uh, or the, the penal substitution of Anselm's theory. Um, what matters is the cross, uh, and almost only the cross, where Abelard wants to say, no, no, look, in Jesus' whole life, you see the pattern of God's love expressed, not only for us, but also to shape us so that we can live our lives lovingly of others. All right, so a number of strengths to Abelard's theory, but let's also talk for a minute about some of the limitations. Um, what are the cons? Well, there are a couple. First, Abelard also does not mention the resurrection. Uh, what matters is Jesus' life, and what matters is him giving himself in love on the cross. 
But when you think about it, uh, if Jesus is our example and our encouragement, you don't really need a resurrected Christ for that. And, and so it misses that major motif in the New Testament. Second, and maybe this is the, the, the key limitation, uh, and I'll, I'll talk about it personally. I love Abelard's theory, right, that we are caught up in God's embrace of love and so turn to each other and love others. I think there's something powerfully true about that. At the same time, um, at the same time, I don't see it working. I don't see anyone who turns to each other uh, in perfect love. There are moments, for sure, again, there's a genius that Abelard recognizes that unless we feel loved, we cannot love others. I think that's true. Uh, and I think hearing that story, experiencing God's love, is the most transformative thing we can imagine. And yet, and yet we're still stuck in sin. Um, we're still mired down by doubts, insecurities, and fears. We still do harmful things to ourselves and even those we love, let alone all the others and creation. And so there's kind of an idealistic element of Abelard that I love, but also I think is its shortcoming. That is, if the problem really is that we're not loving enough to live in relationship with God, then I haven't seen since Jesus anyone uh, who is. And that leads to a third limitation that's really important to point out. In the end, what God's uh, part of this show, God's part of this drama, is to come amongst us in the form of Jesus to love, to be an example, and to be an encouragement. After that, though, it's, uh, it's pretty much up to us. We're the ones who are called to then love others as God has loved us. And I get a little worried, a little anxious about imagining that finally, uh, when the day is over, what we're going to look at and see just how loving we are. Um, so as much as I like Abelard's theory, I think there's a real Achilles heel that we're going to want to pay attention to as well. And that's the end of David's talk if you're interested in learning more about his ideas about understanding the cross and if you haven't listened to parts one and two then definitely go back and listen to those or go take the courses at churchnext.tv they're available there along with david's course in the gospel of mark and if you want to learn more about david's ideas in another context check out his making sense series of books or go to his website at davidlose.net that's the end of today's podcast. Thanks so much for being here today. If you'd like to learn more about us, go to churchnext.tv, and I'd like to close with the Collect for Good Friday. Almighty God, we pray you graciously to behold this your family, for whom our Lord Jesus Christ was willing to be betrayed and given into the hands of sinners, and to suffer death upon the cross, who now lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.